Welcome to the Seedcast, brought to you by Armor Seed. Okay, we want to welcome everyone to the third edition of the Armor Seedcast, and really excited today about our guest. We've got Tommy Jumper. He's the CEO and managing partner of Delta Peanut, which is a peanut processing facility that's being built here in Jonesboro. And we're going to have a conversation today about Delta Peanut itself, talk a little bit about the peanut industry. Before we get started, Tommy, if you don't mind, why don't you give uh, the listeners a kind of an overview of your background, and then when you get finished with that, just lead right in and tell us how you got interested in the peanut industry. Okay. Well, first, thanks for having me here, Kelly. Um, It's exciting to talk about something that um, is gaining so much momentum and that so many people are involved in. So I'm Tommy Jumper, and I'm a local guy. I grew up uh, just outside of Paragool. Went to school at Arkansas State, a little ahead of you, but I went to Arkansas State. Graduated from there and went to work for Dow Chemical. Um, That was so long ago that Dow Chemical was uh, in Midland, Michigan, and the biggest thing that they did was brine chemistry. So that kind of dates myself, but um, that really didn't fit me. So I took a job, which ended up being a really, really rewarding career with a company called Sanders. Um, You knew me the majority of the time when I was the vice president of seed strategy and manufacturing and, and armor was a really, really strategic partner for us. And so we, and we, got and we've worked a lot in the rice industry too. Uh, and the, and the rice and corn, and we've done a lot of things together. So, um, so we've known each other for a long time, but, um, toward the end of my career, um, it was, um, the, the, the company sold and, and um, I was looking for that next thing to do. A little bit too young to retire, but, um, but, but needing a little change of direction. And my past experience had taught me a lot of things about farmers' opportunities in, in states other than just Arkansas. So I was intrigued with the fact that uh, farmers elsewhere had lots of opportunities to vertically integrate themselves off the farm. On another note, because I was in the seed business, one of the manufacturers that you've done business with as well was LMC Manufacturing down in Donaldsonville, Georgia, who built the gravity tables and things that we used around a seed conditioning facility. From that relationship, I'd met lots and lots of growers down in that South Georgia area, and I became pretty familiar with peanuts as a crop. Um, I understood the value proposition and margin on the farm. I also began to understand their value in rotation and, uh, and was just intrigued. So if I tried to point back to a day that I really got interested in this peanut business, I, I can't really point back to a date. It's been a long, long time. But about a year and a half ago, I got really serious about it. And um, I retired my job and... Um, and began to uh, try to put together a peanut operation for North Arkansas. And, and I guess the reason that I tried that, our guys, our neighbors up here, farmers that you and I both know, uh, had been raising peanuts up here for long enough to prove to themselves that they could be very dependable suppliers of really high-quality peanuts. But they were frustrated because there wasn't enough market for them to, um, for them to, to grow their acres 
to the point where they could justify their equipment and to grow their acres to where they could they could really manage their rotation. And still yet, there were some growers who had no opportunity because they didn't have any contract. And there, there was a valid reason for that. The, the shelling companies that had brought peanut production up to our area recognized how good our production was, but the freight back to their shelling plants in South Georgia or West Texas made these peanuts extremely expensive. So I guess I just reasoned that if we were ever going to increase our peanut acreage up here, there needed to be shelling facilities up here. And um, I, I made a decision that uh, I would retire from what I was doing and see if I could raise the equity and build a shelling plant up here. I made a conscious decision to do it with farmer investment rather than just seek um, some kind of private equity. And I'm so, so happy that I did because there's uh, today, there's about 60 farm families that have uh, dug really deep in their pockets and uh, they have invested a total of about $26.5 million in equity. And um, as this business goes forward, it's going to be really, really rewarding to see that investment pay dividends back to them on their own farms. Yeah, um, it's, uh, it's interesting because you talk about you didn't can't put a date on it, but you and I have known each other for a long time. Yeah, a long and, time. Uh, I, you know, I remember you talking about the peanut business eight, nine, ten years ago. So to see this come to fruition is, uh, is a big deal for this part of the world. And I know for you personally, just from being around you, it's, it's very rewarding to have seen it come to fruition. Yeah, you know, it is um, because, um, you know, I'm out to the point where I got to face it. I'm nearing the end of my career. I think I've got another eight or ten years left in me, but but I am getting out there toward the end. And agriculture's been good to me. I made a living out of it for a long time, and I really appreciate the people that that borrow the money and plant the crop and take the risk. And and you know, all too often, uh, their margins are pretty thin because commodity prices don't reward them for the risk that they take and the hard work that they put in. And and so if I can help them just capture a longer piece of that value chain uh, and then at the same time help them have ownership in something that they can pass from one generation to another that will stay with that family farm, then, um, you know, that, that'll be my satisfaction in the thing. Well, you mentioned uh, the growers and, and their ownership. How is Delta Peanut structured? Is from a business standpoint. Yeah, so from a dis- business standpoint, we are an LLC. Um, we look a little bit like a cooperative since we're farmer-owned, but we're an LLC because, uh, as you well know, the, the tax structure and all of that is a lot more simple in an LLC. But we're owned by 60 or so uh, uh, grower entities, and we have, uh, we have an initial managing board, uh, remember, we're just kind of in a startup. So the first board members were six members that I appointed. And at our first annual meeting, the membership will elect three additional to make a board of nine. And we'll be governed by that by that board of directors. So one thing you touched on just briefly a minute ago, and I just you and I have a little conversation about our the vertical integration of not only the peanut industry, but also just our ag industry in general. Most people probably don't know, but chickens, eggs, pork, a lot of orange juice has been vertically integrated from the grower to the consumer. And it seems that peanuts are kind of headed that same direction. Would you agree with that? Oh, I would agree. So we're not the first to do this. 
Um, there are some large, uh, obviously, there's some large good companies in the peanut business, but the uh, the more recent ones that have been built, and you don't build peanut shelling plants every day. They're not. There's not. There's not one built every year, but as they're built, the last four that have been built have been this grower-owned model. But, you know, that's, that's not unique to the South. That's not unique to Peanuts. Um, I remember an epiphany that I had. Actually, I got weathered out on a business trip up north, and I had lunch with a group of growers that raised sugar beets. And, and I listened to them, and I saw that the combined – value of sugar beet production together with the sugar refinery was what really, really rewarded those farmers for their efforts. And so I think it's a very modern business model. I think it's trending in that direction. And very interestingly, when when we're involving something like a food ingredient like peanuts that are ultimately sold, our customer will be people like I'm gonna, I hate to say names. I'll leave somebody out. But Mars Wrigley that makes peanut M&Ms and, and J.M. Smucker that makes Jif peanut butter and Hormel who owns the Skippy peanut butter brand. There's, there's the consumer out there really, really wants the connectivity with the farm. And so the, the model that we have where we're farmer-owned and our farmers can demonstrate the fact that they're working hard on things like sustainability – and they can measure that. That connects very, very well with consumers in the country. And so the uh, for that and a lot of other reasons, those those huge, big, iconic brands that are in all of our pantries are really accepting us and anxious to do business with us. And it's w- what we change here is the, the thought process around a commodity where growers in the past have had to take what price has given them because it's a commodity to something that they now can add value to and, and collect that kind of, not necessarily take the middleman out of this, but, but in some cases that's kind of the, the, the model, right? Absolutely. And so I was looking for that crop that could elevate us from a commodity toward a food ingredient. And if you go all the way to the other end of the continuum, you can you you could think about fresh vegetables and produce and all of that. But but at the end of the day, peanuts are that crop that move us in that direction, but we still farm conventionally. Right? We can still do it with we have to have some specific equipment, but we can still farm on the scale and the pace that we farm at here in the Mid-South and move ourselves a notch upward in that chain toward a food ingredient. Hey, you, you just led me right where I wanted to go, so thanks for that. But they, we talked a little earlier about, you did, you touched on it some, about how Delta Peanut and the peanut crop works so well for Northeast Arkansas, or, or really the Delta, because I know you've got some peanuts growing in Louisiana also. But why don't you give us just uh, talk a little bit about the peanut the growing of the peanut, why it's such a good rotation crop, just kind of the agronomics of, of why we farm it. You bet. Um, you know, for, for a long, long time, I guess going all the way back to George Washington Carver, peanuts have been known to have a lot of agronomic benefits. So not only do they generate a margin at the farm gate, that margin continues to play itself out. At Delta Peanut, we're really emphatic about our growers staying on a one-in-three rotation. And we're emphatic about having irrigation. Um, That separates us and makes us distinct among the peanut-producing areas of the U.S. But uh, the typical rotation includes cotton and maybe corn. And what we found and beginning to measure 
we have an extremely high confidence level that there is a very significant increase in yield with cotton behind peanuts. One of the one of the reasons we've been in continual cotton up here so long that we've built up um, populations of things like root knot nematodes, and uh, peanuts don't serve as a host crop for that. So you actually reduce the uh, the population of root knot nematodes, and it's not uncommon at all for our guys to tell me that they're getting two to three hundred pounds per acre worth of yield increase with cotton behind their peanuts. So you raise the tide and everybody wins. Uh, and that plays out not only the year that they're in peanuts, but in the rotation crops behind it. Peanuts are also extremely efficient in their use of water. And we're blessed, we're fortunate to have abundant irrigation here. But as we go forward, our farmers are very intentional about wanting to be good stewards of that resource. And so peanuts play very well into into that as well. So when you think about the differences from peanut to maybe some of the traditional crops we have in this part of the world, what would what would some of those differences be? I mean, I know one thing that, that you and I have a lot of experience with seed. So just from my visiting with you, I know uh, from a seed standpoint, we, we plant a lot more peanut seed. But can you think of a couple, two, three maybe differences that people out there who don't farm peanuts would be interested in? Absolutely. Um, and, they, and, and I learn new ones every day, right? But the uh, you touched on the seeding rate. And so the typical kind of seeding rate around peanuts is 135 pounds an acre. And, and so literally some of these guys say, you know, I'm, I make around and I have to stop and fill up. Make around and I have to stop and fill up. But peanuts are also large and they're, and they're shaped a little differently. So th- they're finding that they established a much more even plant stand. To do that, they have to slow their planting speed down, right? Another very, very obvious thing is that there are no technologies, no traits in peanuts. So we are back to conventional weed control. And, um, you know, and, and that, that's a good thing, bad thing. It's a little different than what they've been accustomed to, but it also helps manage that uh, resistance by, by adding that crop in there that's rotation. But I think the, I think the biggest thing comes at harvest time. You know, it's been a long time since I've been on a farm, but when, uh, when one of these producers fires up um, a combine with the width of headers that some of these guys have, and, and they begin to saw through a soybean crop, it goes pretty quick. Well, peanuts at harvest um, are really slow. Uh, the equipment is slower and smaller, but then you also have that added step of having to dig them and let them dry on top of the ground for a couple of three days. So ground speeds of a, uh, of a, of a peanut combine are excruciatingly slow when you've been accustomed to running harvest equipment as fast as we've gotten. So there are some differences, um, and, and they're not necessarily all good or all bad, but they're just different. What about the risks in a peanut uh, crop you know, in rye soy we've all kind of gotten used to those risks what what are the risks in peanut i know one of them is the weather yeah and and I, i'm gonna say that last year probably tested us um peanuts and and we hope that we can find cultivars that are a little shorter season as we go on but they are they are a long season crop and given the fact that harvest is the way it is 
um, and we had a wet, early, cold fall last year. We experienced probably one of the toughest years I can remember in just trying to get that crop harvested. And um, so that's a, that's a risk. Another another risk that is not different than the other crops that we raise, but it's maybe emphasized a little bit in peanut, is that of aflatoxin. We all know that if it's our corn crop or whatever, it can be subject to uh, aflatoxin levels if it's raised in drought stress kind of years. Peanuts can too. It's a little bit different than that peanuts are not a feed crop but a food ingredient. So the the parameters around accepting um, aflatoxin peanuts are a little bit more challenging. There's markets for those that are that do have aflatoxin, but to preserve the value of what you're trying to do. And that's, and, and the primary, the, the primary uh, prevention there is irrigation. And we're fortunate here that all of our peanuts are irrigated. And so our incidence historically of aflatoxin have been a lot lower than people in the Southeast. Well, we, we talked to here about the peanut growing stages and, and those type of things. But let's transition to the actual peanut shelling plant because I think that is what has been intriguing to a lot of folks. I know here at the office today, they knew you were coming in and they were asking me a lot of questions. We'll, i get you get you to one of those here in a little bit. But uh, the peanuts get harvested and then they get brought to Delta Peanut, right? So why don't you take us through what we're, what we're building mm-hmm. right? and what those things do. So we've got a shelling plant, we've got buying points. Why don't you go into some of that detail and, and kind of tell the, the listeners what Delta Peanut's going to look like? You bet. You know, we have... Here, here in Arkansas, the Boot Hill, Missouri, and, and uh, northern Louisiana, most of our crops historically go from the farm to on-farm storage. Peanuts don't lend themselves to on-farm storage, so you have to establish a buying point. So peanuts are delivered from the field to the buying point. At the buying point, obviously they're scaled in, but the USDA grades them there and establishes the loan value for them there. But you also at that buying point, you clean them, you dry them, and then you store them until such time as the shelling plant is ready to shell those. Now, the shelling plant is fascinating. Um, you've been around soybean and rice seed conditioning facilities and uh, as long as I have, and, and we were always intrigued about all that anyway. So when you see a peanut shelling plant, just imagine a soybean conditioning facility on steroids. Um, it's a lot of the similar, a lot of the equipment is very, is the same or similar. We still have gravity tables. We still have color sorters. We still have lots of that. But instead of like you and I used to do throwing away our splits, we capture those. Because one of the unique things about peanuts is that every piece of that peanut is something that we can commercialize. Uh, breaks down into grades, which is, I think, kind of fascinating. And, and I, I kind of had a, uh, a misconception about which of the grades were most valuable. But w- when we shell these peanuts and we grade them by size, um, you'll have jumbos, you'll have mediums. You'll have splits. You'll have number ones. And for a long time, I thought number ones were the big ones. That's the <laughs> little ones. Uh, but then beyond that, um, you have those small little broken pieces that in a soybean crop we throw away. We commercialize those even as things like bird feed. 
and, and then if you have any stained or really bad fro- freeze-damaged peanuts, you even commercialize those to extract peanut oil out of. Um, even the shells um, have a market, and they can go anything from plywood to cattle feed um, to maybe, we hope, up here where we live, we hope that they'll make really, really good poultry bedding. It's uh, That was the question that I got to ask this I, this morning. What do you do with the holes? <laughs> yeah. So I think that's what everybody would like to know is because that's a bunch of holes. Yeah, right? you do. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a lot of holes, and it's not lost on me that I've got to find a home for all <laughs> of them. Right, that's right. But, uh, but there are markets for there are traditional markets. I had a guy call me yesterday from St. Louis, introduced himself, and he's in the market of helping, of, of using things like peanut hulls and peanut skins. You know, when, when, when you break open a hull of a peanut, you've got that, you've got that pale red colored skin, and under that is even the meat of a, of a peanut. And sometimes in the manufacturing process, the skin will break off, right? Well, we capture that, and people buy that. And people buy the hulls, and people buy the brokens and the little pieces. So, and and you know, lots and lots of the peanuts that we'll raise here ultimately will end up in peanut butter. And to somebody that makes peanut butter, and and we're fortunate that we have three really big peanut manufacturers very close to us here. And so the logistics of doing business with those people weighs in their favor. And and so they are picky about the grade and quality of peanuts that they get, but they can use jumbos, mediums, and splits because they're going to roast them, grind them into peanut butter anyway. So you and I've talked a little bit about this just because I'm I'm curious about everything. So what about in shell peanuts? We we Delta Peanut won't do that initially, but that's a market to itself, is it not? In shell peanuts are what you would be accustomed to buying when you go to a Cardinal baseball game, right? Those are Virginia-type peanuts. There are actually four different types of peanuts that are raised in the U.S. Runners, which is the majority of what we raise, in-shells or Virginia-type, which are the great big ballpark peanuts. There are also Spanish, which are the small, dense little peanuts, and there are Valencias. Well, historically, we've raised runners here, but we're convinced we're convinced that we can raise Virginia types for the in-shell market as well. And we've had lots of interest from large brands that you would recognize that uh, are very interested in, in taking Virginia production from us. Most of the Virginias that are raised today are raised on the East Coast, Virginia, okay, Suffolk, that area. And when you think about the freight to the West Coast, and we're halfway in between. And so we actually this year, not on a, not on a commercial level, but we actually sampled the, um, a variety or two of Virginia-type peanuts and planted them just for us to learn. Because the, the key there, the key there is to make sure that you dig, that you plant them in soil that's conducive, and that you dig them manage them toward harvest, keeping the shell very bright and pretty. It's optics, right? So we, we want to make sure that we learn to do that before we step off in that market. But that's a market that um, usually is even more profitable than the runner type. But we're going to crawl before we walk. 
and we expect that we'll be in that in-shell business commercially within a couple of three years. Why don't you take us back? Uh, we're talking about shelling the peanuts. What happens after they're shelled? What kind of package type are they in? How do they get where they're going? Just give us some an overview of kind of the logistics of peanuts. You bet. So the standard unit of measure for shelled peanuts uh, after they've come out of that shelling plant is a tote, jumbo bag. And so we'll have all those uh, automatic packaging things that that measure and fill totes. The unique thing about them is, though, that they leave there and they go into cold storage. Um, I think we'll out. I think we'll outgrow our cold storage pretty quick. But we're initially building enough cold storage to store 13 million pounds of peanuts. Um, after the cold storage, believe it or not, when we sell peanuts for delivery, you'd think you just take them out of cold storage, put them on a rail car, or put them on a truck, and loosely, depending on who we sell peanuts to. It could be 40, 60 either way, the peanuts that leave our place by way of rail or by way of truck. But if you stop and think about this, you take cold peanuts out of cold storage. If you load them straight on a rail car on a truck, moisture is going to condense because they're going to warm up very quick. So we have to temper them first just to equalize them with the ambient temperature so that we don't create moisture, which is a bad thing, with, with shelled peanuts that are ready to go to a manufacturer. We also, in our plant, have what's called a bar-ready line. So i got to tell you, they're our friends, but the guys at LMC have advanced this shelling technology to a point where it's unbelievable how clean a sample of peanuts can be going to a customer. If you imagine a tractor-trailer load of peanuts going to one of these food brands, and we being able to represent that there will be 10 or fewer pieces of foreign material in a tractor trailer load, it's amazing. But if a customer wants it even cleaner so that they can go directly into their bar, into their, into their candy confectionery thing, we can, we can take that back through what we call a bar-ready line and remill that peanut so that the customer that receives that receives it in such a way that it's ready to go directly into maybe the production of a candy bar. So when you think about Delta Peanut, what is your long-term vision? I mean, how, what do you see Delta Peanut turning into? Uh, maybe before you go there, too, that's one thing I forgot. Give us the capacity. What's, what's the capacity of Delta Peanut from the beginning, and then where will we be? No, I'm glad you took us back there. I should have said that to begin with. Um, We'll be building this over time. So we initially set out not to outkick our coverage. We're building a shelling plant, two buying points, and then we're commissioning a buying point that's already been in business up here. But the plant will have a capacity of 25 to 30 tons an hour, which translates into 185, 90,000 tons a year. I'm going to let that sink in just a minute. That's a lot of peanuts, because even when you remove the hulls, don't hold me to this math, but I think that's something like 250 million pounds of peanuts. So, it's, so, so the capacity in that plant, because you know, it's hard to go back and add capacity to a plant. So we built the capacity in the plant to begin with, and then we'll layer on additional buying points over time. But our, our first crop, 
we're only uh, expecting to shell about 90,000 tons. That lets us that that lets us enter into the peanut market without being disruptive. It lets us do all those things that we need to do toward meeting food safety requirements that that we'll eventually have to do, uh, and gives us time then to continue to grow. So so my vision, you know, I I don't know that I have an end game, right? Um, there's not an end game. And and the re and intentionally there's not an end game. You you very well know that had had I chosen a different source of equity, there would have been an end game. But Delta Pina will exist transgenerationally, and that's what I think I'm the happiest about. I can I can visualize my farmer neighbor friends who have invested, and they have equity that they can pass on from generation to generation. But the, but the journey will look a little like this. We'll, we'll start with 90,000 tons this year. Over a five or six year period of time, we'll continue to grow our buying point and storage until we meet out the uh, capacity of the plant at 180, 90,000 tons. We will probably add an in-shell line, which is a separate manufacturing business, we may even add a small seed-specific shelling plant, and um, and then then we'll make the decision as we go on. But there's opportunity, maybe even to build an oil mill, so that we extract our own peanut oil. And then there's always the uh, option to um, expand to the second shelling plant on the delta. Um, a good friend of mine predicted about eight or 10 years ago that peanuts would migrate toward the Delta. And I think, I think he was right. I'll give a shout out to Jim Leake who uh, nobody on this podcast knows, but he came alongside me about eight or 10 years ago and said, uh, they just need somebody to sponsor it. Peanuts are going to try to move to the Delta and follow the water. So we're just trying to facilitate that. Well, we really appreciate you coming in. And all the comments. I think everybody's going to be fascinated by this, as I have. And it's one of the reasons why we brought you in. And just from the standpoint of Northeast Arkansas, thanks for the work that you've done on this, because it's going to be a big deal for this part of the state. So appreciate you being here today. Well, thank you. And so, you know, it's all for a bunch of stakeholders. And I get asked a lot about who else will come. Well, you know, there's a freight company that's coming to town to talk to us next week. They may want to build a logistics terminal here around us. There's people with cold storage that do that, and they want to come to town and visit with us about opportunity to build extra. So, Kelly, I really think I really think that these farmers have banded together in such a way that the um, the measurable economic impact to Northeast Arkansas and the Boot Hill of Missouri will be really real. Yeah, and and since you brought that up, one of the things that that I've just seen being a little bit involved and in knowing you as well as I know you, these growers have banded back together where in a lot of areas we see it doing the opposite. You know, people are kind of fighting each other versus working together. And it's been kind of cool, I know, for you, and it has been for me to just hear you talk about it because, you know, I think our industry needs more of that. But, yeah, but I agree. anyway, really appreciate you coming in, Tommy. Uh, I think it's fascinating. I think everybody's going to really enjoy the podcast. So we, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is the Seedcast, brought to you by Armor Seed. Start strong, plant armor.